Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, back in Washington, D.C. After three days at the Halifax International Security Forum in Halifax, Nova Scotia, our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, we'll hear from Peter Van Praag, the president and CEO of the Halifax International Security Forum, or HFX. And our roundtable discusses key takeaways after three days in uh, Nova Scotia. But first, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, always a pleasure uh, having you on. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Byron, what's on your mind and what does our audience need to be focusing on this week? Um, look, it's it's obviously fairly quiet in the United States. I think, uh, you know, Honeywell is doing an investor event on the 23rd. Uh, and since they have defense and aerospace uh, businesses, it might be interesting to hear their perspective. You know, as far as the think tank community, well, Congress is out on recess. As far as the think tank community is concerned, you know, what's going on is mainly in London this week. Uh, Royal United Services Institute is holding an event on a transatlantic approach to China and uh, on the 22nd, and IISS in London is holding something on U.S.-China competition and AI. But, you know, there's always, there's always stuff going on. You never, never, ever say this is just going to be a quiet week where nothing happens. Uh, well, exactly right. I mean, it's Washington. Uh, you are uh, you're, you don't have bookie tendencies, uh, Byron, but you're being a bit of a bookie on this in terms of odds, uh, looking at where we are on the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, right? I mean, there was a lot of hopefulness on the part of members uh, in uh, the the U.S. Uh, senatorial delegation that was at uh, Halifax that we're going to get there, you know, for seven decades. We've always had an NDAA. We will continue to have an NDAA. Um, but you are putting odds on this, right? I mean, there are those who are yeah. getting more and more concerned that we'll have a full year continuing resolution. Ron mentioned that on yesterday's, uh, Ron Epstein mentioned that on yesterday's program. Where do you stand on the odds? Well, look, I, I think clearly, I, I think NDAA um, is is really in pretty good shape. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if that gets done uh, in December, or maybe in early January, and that's kind of normal for the NDAA. I don't, I don't you know, as much as it's must pass legislation. Uh, if you look at when it gets enacted, uh, most times since two thousand, it's either been in December or January. Appropriations is another question, however, and I think you know we have a current uh, continuing resolution that that runs through December third. You know, the, the talk last week was <clears throat> you'd probably see another uh, continuing resolution maybe through December 17th. But I, there's so much on, on the plate in Congress, uh, mainly with, with the Build Back Better Act. I just think it's going to be a very heavy lift uh, for Congress to get that done. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see, um, you know, even if there is a continuing resolution next week through uh, December 17th, there'll be another one in December that'll get us into 2022. And so instead of kind of even odds for something getting done by December or something getting done no later than March or April, I, I tilted that more towards the March or April side. I'm still skeptical that we're going to get a full year CR. Um, I just think, you know, you have both the chairman and the ranking member of the Senate Appropriations Committee. This will be their kind of last rodeo, so to speak. Um, and I, I think that's not a note that they probably want to go out on. 
it's obviously very damaging to national security to have a full year CR because without a lot of anomalies. And, and so far, I, I'm not hearing a chatter about, oh, we'll give you a full CR, but with all sorts of anomalies. Um, and then the last point is just, it is a midterm election year. I think, you know, people running still want to go back and say, hey, we got some stuff done. So all that's in the NDA obviously is irrelevant uh, if, if you don't get the, uh, the appropriations bill done. I shouldn't say all of it, but the funding increase, you know, the 25 billion add uh, to defense won't happen if you have a full year CR. Uh, it, it, exactly. Right. And I mean, and that all of a sudden ends up causing a lot of problems. Let me just quickly ask you about nominations. Right. I mean, you've been tracking this for a long time. Uh, I was talking to a mutual friend earlier uh, today and, and a little little bit of surprise from him. You know, he's like, look, I don't think I ever recall a time where, for example, uh, the acquisition and sustainment secretary is undecided uh, at this point. Right. I mean, we have Heidi Shu, who's in research and engineering. The job obviously was broken up uh ultimately into two separate jobs are, are you surprised that some of these jobs continue to be unfilled this, this deep I, into an administration and what does it mean well a you know these are tough jobs uh in any event um i i am a bit surprised particularly uh acquisition and sustainment but also down at the assistant secretary uh level there, there are a lot of positions that we haven't even seen a nominee yet um and, and then, you know, the, the flip side of that is also there are people who've been nominated. This is really more at an ambassadorial level where they've had holds placed on them by Senate Republicans. And so that's also been, you know, kind of getting the day to day execution of U.S. foreign policy taken care of. You know, that that to me is another uh, another issue that that you have to watch. And I, I think it's particularly relevant um, given the discussion, you know, over the weekend about Russian preparations for, a, a, you know, an attack on Ukraine in kind of the January, February timeframe. I mean, that, that ought to focus a lot of people's attention on, hey, we really need to get people in place uh, to manage a crisis of that magnitude if, if that's where we're headed. And uh, are you, you know, I mean, there's a lot of debate about whether or not the Russians are uh, going to attack or whether or not this is just uh, posturing from your standpoint. I mean, since you're getting into the odds business, <laughs> are you? Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, you know, there's an action reaction phase here. Um, I, I am I have been intrigued by the signaling that's been going on from uh, both both the U.S. and Europe this go round. Uh, uh, on the other hand, you know, just reading some of the expert commentary on this this morning, you know, there is a sense that hey, the Russians seem like they're a little bit more prepared this time um, in, in kind of how they're deploying troops and what they might be up to. Uh, I, I I'd still think this is a low probability, but it, it really will depend on you know, uh, what, what's done to convince the Russians that this is not a, a, a good thing to try and undertake. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Hope you guys have a terrific Thanksgiving and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Always. Thanks, Fago. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. And joining us now is Peter Van Praag, the president and CEO of the Halifax International Security Forum here in Nova Scotia at the conclusion of three amazing days, amazing days pulled off in the face of a pandemic uh, with a testing regime. And yet, uh, Peter, as, as good as any uh, meeting that we've had. 
talk to us a little bit about, from your standpoint, what the key takeaways uh, from these three days are. Vago, I'm so glad you're here. I love seeing you here. It gives me a sense of confidence. I would go so far as to say that perhaps this was the best meeting we've had in 13 years. Why? Because we brought people together in person, and there was such an appetite to be together. I don't even think people knew uh, how much they missed it until they were here, they saw each other, and I think that, frankly, uh, if I say it myself, I think we did a service uh, by bringing people together safely. Very, you know, we were very safe. We had strict rules, but safely, but bringing people together from all around the world in person. I have to say everybody was wearing masks. Everybody has to show proof of vaccination. Uh, everybody had to go through a test before coming up here. Uh, and, and yet we still had a lot of rich interaction uh, despite, despite all that, or perhaps because of that, we, we did. There were an enormous number of messages. Obviously, the mission of the forum is to be talking about peace, security, the full Monty, not just on, for example, hard or soft power, but also uh, women's rights. It was one of the most moving things was your initial address, which really framed uh, how challenging a time it's been. And then, of course, uh, the female tactical platoon, which was the McCain uh, awardee, which was just incredibly moving. But we heard so many messages from everybody, from the Indo-Pacific commander uh, to the NATO military chairman, Bob Bauer, uh, was, was here, you know, obviously uh, Admiral Lung Aquilino at Indo-PACOM. What were some of the other rich messages that you think folks uh, need to be thinking about as this conference sets us up to how to think about the coming year? Well, Vago, um, I think, you know, and you mentioned my opening remarks, I think it was, <coughs> excuse me, important to acknowledge that the last two years have been difficult. And just to go forward um, as if the last two years didn't happen really risked any credibility. So what we did is we slowed things down and we talked about uh, where we are in the world um, and how we got here. And then we talked about the challenges. We talked about the future of terrorism, uh, both from abroad and homegrown terrorism. Um, we talked about uh, the withdrawal of Afghanistan and the consequences of that. We talked, of course, a lot about China. We talked about climate change. Um, and we talked about the post-pandemic environment uh, writ large. And we had special guests also um, talking about the threat to Ukraine coming from Russia at this time. And the overarching message, I think, Vago, fundamentally on all of these issues and more, was that democracies have to work more closely together. And that when they do, and when they do it well, there's really no challenge that can't be overcome. And I do think that people left at the end of the weekend with a sense of optimism and confidence that that remains true. Um, as, as you said, right, uh, present but not permanent, and this is something we have to work on, uh, which has obviously been one of the, the mottos uh, of uh, HFX uh, as, as it is. Um, what you're trying to do next is very ambitious. Uh, it's one thing to partner with the Canadian government and to come here. This conference would not have been as special, I think, if you had been doing it in Ottawa than you are doing it here in Nova Scotia. Obviously, you had the backing of the great Peter McKay, who supported the conference getting it uh, uh, underway. But now the next conference is going to be in Taipei. Uh, I thought that, that your videos, for anybody who has not participated in the forum or at least can go on YouTube and check out, these are award-winning videos. And that Olympic video was extremely moving. You're trying to do this conference next in February in Taipei. What are the challenges associated with this? Because your success is our success in this battle, ultimately, because mm -hmm. China is going to try to make an example mm -hmm. of the organization for trying to do what it's doing. Um, China's big country. I think it's the second biggest economy in the world. People are projecting that it's going to be 
overtake the United States as the biggest economy in the world. It's the largest country in the world um, by population. And um, it's, uh, it's run by a megalomaniac, and it's an authoritarian regime. And despite its size, um, smaller players, uh, including countries, um, but even an organization as small as ours, um, can't be cowed. We can't be afraid. Uh, we are free people. Uh, that, that is what makes us strong. And we're going to have an event uh, in cooperation with the government of Taiwan uh, in Taipei this spring. The date hasn't been announced because we're still working out uh, details with regard to getting their people there safely and keeping the community safe because of COVID. Um, but just as the Chinese do not want a light shined uh, on the situation in Taiwan, it does not want the world to know how successful Taiwan has been, how vibrant a democracy Taiwan has become. Um, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to shine that light. We're going to bring people from around the world. Um, and we're going to have a nice three days in, in Taipei. Um, last question. You know, you remain optimistic on each of these points, but actually there's a lot to be disappointed about or worried about, right? Well, the awardees in 2019 were the Hong Kong yeah. uh, uh, democracy protesters. That movement over the course of the two year was crushed and by, by using COVID as a reason in order to do that. We heard from Vladimir Karamurza about how Putin has used uh, you know, the pandemic to further authoritarianism. And indeed, in the United States, as we heard from Senator Tim Kaine, right, this worry that the threat is actually from within. Mm -hmm. What is it that gives you confidence? And what is it that folks have to take more seriously in democracies to make sure that we don't screw this up? I actually think that the last couple of years have been tough, as you said, but I think um, they are proof that our democracies um, are two things. Number one, they're, va they're fragile. And number two, they're resilient, so long as we make them resilient. And because I think there's been a new realization that they are fragile, and now it's up to us to ensure that they maintain their resilience. Um, and I think, I don't think, I know that we will. As I said, Vago, at the top of my remarks, um, we're carrying a heavy weight after this pandemic. But the weight that we're carrying, um, we've carried heavier weights together as a community of democracies, and we're going to get through this as well. There are big challenges. We are not going to ignore them. Um, but exactly because there are big challenges, we're going to work more closely together, and we're going to overcome them together. Um, I wish you all the best. And after a little bit of rest, look forward to getting you back on the program so that we can talk a little bit about Taipei uh, and how folks, how can folks get involved, right? I mean, is there a process you guys are doing to figure out how, uh, because you have a stand together uh, stand here, so the folks yeah. make, right, the, do these brief videos. Talk a little bit about how folks can involve, get involved in the Stand Together campaign. Yeah, please do. We have a social media campaign asking people to stand together on China, hashtag stand together on China. So please join that. Um, send us a video of your saying, stand together on China, um, to, uh, to uh, HFX uh, China uh, Twitter feed. And, um, and, you know, here's the point, Vago. Um, no one can do this alone. No country can do this alone. No organization can do this alone. And so we all need to help each other out. And uh, we expect that with our hashtag Stand Together on China, we're going to have a lot of interest. And we're going to have a lot of interest from people from around the world who want to attend uh, our event in Taiwan in the spring. Peter, all the very best. Thanks so very much for another terrific, uh, terrific event. And wish you all the luck getting ready. And once you get some rest, let's get you back on the program. Vago, you're the best. Thanks so much for taking time to do this.
And joining us now to discuss takeaways from the Halifax International Security Forum that ran this weekend in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the great uh, Canadian town, uh, home of the uh, Canadian Atlantic Fleet. Uh, joining us is Dr. Misha Oslin, the Peyton J. Treat Distinguished Research Fellow in Contemporary Asia at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Heather Hurlbert, the Director of the New Models of Policy Change Project at the New America Think Tank's Political Reform Program, and Dr. Dov Zakheim, who among his many affiliations uh, is associated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And of course, Dov uh, was a former Pentagon uh, comptroller. Everybody, it was terrific seeing you in Halifax. Thanks very much for joining us on Friday's show. I think if anybody knew uh, the pressures under which we taped Friday's show, everybody performed very, very admirably as we were waiting for the jet to leave. And in fact, the jet was getting ready uh, to leave while we were still uh, recording. Uh, Misha, let me, let me start with you. Lung Aquilino, uh, Admiral John Aquilino, uh, the commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command was there and gave uh, a thoughtful address. Uh, there were a lot of sidebar uh, conversations. Obviously, China loomed very large uh, in the programming uh, in the week. And I want to sort of go down the line uh, and get your impressions, right? I mean, we talked a little bit about expectations going into this uh, event. What, what did you guys carry out of it? What were the key messages? Uh, what reassured you? What may have worried you? Go ahead, Misha, start us off. Well, look, I, th I think we know that there's there's a, a range within any of the uh, the senior officials can talk about these issues and compared to you know, five years ago, they are now fully comfortable with openly talking about the China threat as well as talking about, you know, whether you want to call it strategic competition or, or I think more appropriately, an adversarial relationship that we're in with China. So from that perspective, I would say there, there isn't all that much new that comes out of it. A lot of it is stuff that either we and these types of groups have talked about or, or you're reading in the press. But I think that the, the tempo and the, the urgency is what is, is new, that, that there is uh, a real sense, uh, and you heard it um, uh, with the deputy commander of uh, Space Force talking about how far behind we are on hypersonics, there, there's really a sense that in this this type of competition, the farther behind you get, the farther the more difficult it is to catch up because the the opponent or whatever you want to call it uh, is continually perfecting next stages going forward. And I think that was stressed by Admiral Aquilino, was stressed uh, by General Thompson and then others that that this is really whatever sense we had that either this was not as bad as we might think or that we had time is really is really not the case uh and that's a, that is that is a very hard message for americans to hear on a lot of different levels but probably most importantly on the level psychologically of of really having to accept that we are no longer confident of being able to do what what we need to do uh, and I think that is what was stressed over and over. I think with Admiral Aquilino, um, he talked a great deal, as as they always do, about partnerships, because once again, the U.S. is recognizing that it cannot do this uh, alone, uh, that it really needs to have the partners going forward. And yet the question that always comes up is, OK, but what can partners really do? And I think that that's the question that's not been answered. It's wonderful to have partners. We need them. We're grateful to them. But when you come down to it, there are only a handful of partners in the region that can make any type of material difference. And I think that's really 
where the debate has to go in the coming years. Meaning if you're saying the U.S. can't go forward alone, and yet we don't really have partners who are going to certainly double what, what we can bring to the table, then you have to think very carefully about strategy. And I would say that underneath everything that Admiral Aquilino, General Thompson, General Clark, the head of SOCOM, U.S. SOCOM, who was there, was talking about, that's really the message, which is we're not fundamentally sure that we are going to be able to do what we need to do, even with partners. And therefore, uh, what we're trying to do right now is get as much upfront as we can. You know, I want to come back to you in a, in, a, in a minute, Misha, but I want to go to Heather uh, next. Heather, what's your, uh, you know, what, what struck you, uh, you know, and every once in a while, right, it's by commission, but also by omission, right? You're listening for the, to this for what it is you're hearing, you know, or maybe what it is that you aren't hearing. Um, you know, what, what, were, what were your uh, takeaways? Three takeaways. First, starting where Michael left off. For a, a conference that was really noteworthy for the very, very high level participation from U.S. armed forces, you know, I can't think when the last time I was someplace with three combatant commanders, um, that you actually heard a lot more on the kind of non-military or the military adjacent sides of the China challenge. Um, you know, a lot of conversation about Taiwan, but beyond that, a lot of conversation about what do we need to do on the tech side? What do we need to do to get our own house in order? What do we need to do on the on the economic side? And so that was, you know, the kind of affirmation to me of um, this this point of view that, you know, the biggest adversary that we're facing is is our own kind of internal inaction and dysfunction. So. So that you know was almost an omission, but an, an interesting thing in this context. Second, um, you know our uh, our Canadian friends um, were both um, rolling out a new defense minister and continuing to deal with the fallout of a really long term um, sexual abuse scandal in their own um, armed forces. And so a lot that we heard both in the formal plenaries and also in the off the record conversations that I participated in was this concern, you know, starting in what's happening in Canada, but looking at German struggles with uh, far right extremists in the special forces, which got some play in the plenaries, and, and also, of course, various American struggles, this question of how we connect the armed forces to society for the struggles ahead. And, you know, even something that was extraordinary to me, the moment that I really sat up in my seat, when you have the chair of the NATO military committee go out of his way on camera to thank General Milley for um, reaffirming the apolitical nature of the U.S. armed forces. That's a real wake up call. And I don't know. It was the last morning of the plenary. I don't know how many people were paying attention, but that to me really said something very profound about the level of concern that our closest allies have for what's going on in the U.S. internally astute uh, point, Heather. I mean, that was that was really there, there were a couple of moments in this uh, that were uh, uh, stunning. And that was was one of those uh, one of those sessions. And there were a couple in the off the record conversations that certainly were uh, eyebrow raising uh, as well. Dove, I want to go to you. Right. I mean, one of the things you and I talked about uh, was and, and you raised it first was not enough senior level civilian. Right. So Heather noted yeah. that it was amazing to have three uh, senior military leaders there from the United States, and I would even say four, because Carl Schultz, the commandant of the United States Coast Guard, and a and a Halifax regular, and somebody who is regarded as, 
a very, very thoughtful participant, uh, as well as sort of a first order military leader who's got always a lot to contribute to each of these conversations. We didn't have any senior level administration folks there. And, and we've had Leon Panetta there in the past and other uh, senior civilian leaders, right? Richard Spencer was there in 2019. Sadly, he lost his job hours, hours after he was at uh, Halifax. Uh, uh, you know, talk, talk to us about what your takeaways were. Well, that was the first one I was going to mention. I think it was terrific that we had four four stars there. And, and uh, I think it's a tribute to the Halifax uh, <laughs> organizers that they can get uh, attract four four stars at the same time. And uh, Lung Aquilino, you know, he arrived at the beginning and he left at the end, which was <laughs> pretty remarkable for an Indo-Pacific commander. Um but yeah, it clearly uh, it worried me that uh, we didn't have even somebody at my old level, the undersecretary level. Um, and it, the only person who was there from the Pentagon at any kind of senior level was Jim Baker, the uh, very talented head of net assessment. But he's a career guy. And so, you know, you were left to wonder, was there something political behind it? Was there some decision that uh, they just didn't want to participate because they were trying to make nice to China. And this wasn't exactly a make nice to China conference. I don't know, uh, but it, it, it was noticeable. And, and uh, so that was one takeaway. Uh, secondly, uh, I uh, felt that the Canadian defense minister demonstrated uh, the extent to which Canada has yet to take defense far more seriously than, than it has. Uh, the, traditionally, the defense ministry is not a first rank ministry. Um, and here was somebody who came in who clearly has a lot to learn uh, and seemed very, very, I must say, insecure in her position. Uh, that was that did not make me feel terribly warm and fuzzy. Uh, and and uh, it is a concern. You, you know, this is not a time where we should be having uh, those kinds of questions about uh, our, our senior defense leaders in, in the various allied countries. Um, on the other hand, uh, a very, very good thing was the bipartisanship of the Senate delegation. It was a very good delegation. Um, they, all the senators, both on the Democratic side, Republican side, I think acquitted themselves exceedingly well. They were all articulate. Um, the one worry, of course, is how far beyond the uh, armed services and uh, committees uh, does bipartisanship extend? And of course, we know the answer to that. And it's a troubling answer. Uh, and finally, and I think this is really an act of huge courage. They are planning to have a conference. Uh, at they're talking about a possible conference in Taiwan uh, sometime uh, in the new year. Uh, that, I think, is a major undertaking. It's going to be a major statement because the, the hallmark of Halifax is it is a conference only of democracies. And I can tell you personally, when I've been approached over the years uh, by uh, senior officials from sort of friends of the United States, but not exactly uh, democracies, that they would like to send their defense or foreign ministers, uh, the uh, conference organizers have said, absolutely not. We only accept democracies or democratic oppositions. And it's to their credit they do that. And if they hold something in Taiwan, that's going to be a huge statement. Uh, it is going to be. And I think why um, that it's it's very, very important for the community to support. I, I'm not I, I have I have no link from Halifax except for believing 
very strongly in the mission and an extraordinary group of people who are doing an extraordinary conference that brings all of the elements of security together. But their success is the world's success in this confrontation against China, Dove. And you're absolutely right in pointing that out because the Chinese will do everything they can, as we heard from Peter at the top of the program, to sort of not make it a success as, as part of a uh, you know, broader campaign about why you know, they don't want to have this kind of traction because once Halifax does it, other people will want to do it. We have to go into a very brief lightning round because we're almost out of troubles uh, time. So everybody gets about 30 seconds on this one. Misha, uh, one of the things that Admiral Aquilino talked about was the symbol of uh, just the sheer amount of big deck aircraft carriers, right? Four carriers, uh, British, uh, Japanese, Australian, US all together, uh, you know, 15,000 sailors and, and, and a lot of ships. But at the end of the day, people also look at this and say, well, wait a minute, that's really, really great. But do these ships actually have the real world capabilities, right? We heard from General Thompson about hypersonics. Financial Times wrote a great story talking about the incredible nature of the Chinese hypersonic test that the hypersonic glide body apparently may have launched a missile from it. Uh, and we're trying to understand how it is uh, that the Chinese may have defied the laws of physics to do it. Okay, numbers matter, but are we actually delivering the kind of capabilities we need to deliver because it doesn't really matter if you have a lot of ships and a lot of sailors without ships that have the range, the effectors, you know, the kind of capabilities that we need for a future confrontation, because none of those aircraft carriers had long range air power on them. Well, Vago, that's definitely not a 30 second answer uh, question. Um, and, and so the best that I can say is there is a very large terrain between daily presence, reassurance, uh, and deterrence operations, and then, of course, armed conflict and, and combat that, um, you know, the concerns that we have and for years, war games that people have been involved with have shown how the carriers are becoming more and more problematical. But there is a, a long road before you get there in terms of saying, look, this is the type of partnership that we have. So you may get some punches in, but we are going to be resilient. We are going to have uh, more ways of, of being able to come back. And I think that that's the type of message that's being sent. Very briefly on the Taiwan conference uh, and, and Dove's um, you know, important and kind comments, as the senior advisor for Asia at Halifax, all I can say is that the, the, um, the, the forum in HFX is completely committed to this. It is a sign of the recognition of, of where the battles are that we are going to be fighting. And it is also the most, uh, I, if I can use the term aggressive, it is the most aggressive approach to showing that the democracies really do now, as opposed to, let's say, 10 years ago or so, really do feel that they are in this together, um, that almost no one else is willing to do something this big and this public in Taiwan. And yet, even as we speak and as we saw at the conference, um, Taiwan and the relationship of Taiwan to the world, to international organizations, to groups like the EU, uh, to individual countries is changing rapidly. And HFX uh, and with Peter Van Praag's uh, leadership on this in terms of, of seeing where HFX needs to go. Uh, HFX is really in the lead. And I think what you're going to see is that this is going to become more and more normal over time, but somebody has to storm the beachhead. Uh, and and I, I really think it's extraordinary that, uh, uh, that they're doing it. I really do. Um, Heather, uh, you get the last word. You want to uh, discuss uh, American presence at the conference. Go ahead. No, I think it's worth pointing out the conference derives a good bit of its emotional oomph and its feeling of camaraderie from its closeness to the spirit of the late John McCain. 
I think what you see in both the Democratic and Republican parties now is that you've got a group of folks in both parties for whom that's an attractive feature and a group of folks in both parties for whom it's not an attractive feature. And I do think you saw for the last couple of administrations that um, that's not something that's pulling senior civilian figures to Halifax. And at some point, that may be a, a choice that the, the conference has to make. If I can sneak in one last little comment you know, about our Canadian hosts, it's fascinating that they appointed as defense secretary the person who led their government through COVID. And that, you know, back to Michael Misha's initial point, right? You got to be just honest and realistic about how your allies view defense, what they are willing to do, what they aren't. And, you know, for that, I think you can you can take a lot away from where the government of Canada is right now. And it was a great opportunity to learn that. Okay, Dove, I, I feel like I've got to hand that off to you. I, uh, uh, Heather, uh, respectfully disagree. I mean, I don't think there's anything about John. I think it's a great award that does a great thing that is in keeping with the human rights core of John McCain. And, you know, uh, I Obama... didn't say it wasn't a great award or that it didn't do a great thing. I'm just saying that it right. uh, we have strands of American politics and you're making a choice. You know, I go to the conference, so clearly I'm making a choice. But I think we got to be realistic that that is now a choice that one is making in American politics. Well, uh, my, my, go ahead. Also, I think the point really should be that the choice should be whether Republican or Democratic administration doesn't really matter. The choice should be that that's exactly what you do want. You want the spirit of McCain. You want the spirit of bipartisanship and you want the spirit of the senators who were there. And they made it very clear, both the Democratic senators and the Republican ones, that they don't agree on a lot of issues, but there are issues on which they do agree. And importantly, it, they fall together on national security. That is clearly very important. And that's why I was so troubled by the absence of the administration's leaders. The only point I was making was the Obama administration sent folks uh, to the conference. The Bush administration sent folks to the conference and even the Trump administration, the national security advisor himself, uh, Robert O'Brien, was was there. The Navy secretary. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It was terrific seeing you uh, after two years of separation live uh, and in person um, and certainly look forward to having you guys on. Uh, again, on a regular basis uh, as we uh, continue to pull on strands that we discussed uh, in Halifax. You know, it's a terrific conference in sort of recapping where we were and where we're going in 2022 and look forward to relying on you guys uh, as part of that team. Thanks again. And Misha, tremendous work on setting up what was a terrific Asia program uh, th this year, right? I mean, the program is always very strong and I know how hard uh, Peter, uh, uh, Robin uh, Shepard, of course, and the entire advisory team work on that. Heather, I think you're involved and Dove, I think you're involved as well. So thanks to all of you uh, for the role you play in what is annually a very successful conference. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.